Well, Good Friday is the traditional day that Christians commemorate Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Good Friday is a, a very different mood than the celebratory mood we have on Resurrection Sunday, because tonight we reflect on why Jesus had to suffer and die. We pause to remember the specific details of the horrible suffering that Jesus went through for us. With that being said, if all we do is reflect on how awful we are and the ugly cost of rescuing us from our sin, I do think we miss the point. A point that Ephesians regularly mentions when it refers to the events of Good Friday. In Ephesians chapter 3, our study won't be here, our study will be in Matthew chapter 27. But in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prayed that we would understand and experience Christ's love enough in order that we might love like he does. He prayed that being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to grasp, to lay hold of so that you can wield it, to grasp with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. After Paul says that, later on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul explains that Christ's love for his church is best understood in how he gave himself. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. This truth is confirmed to us by Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates or proves his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? His love towards us and that Jesus died for us, he proves it there. In John 15, 13, Jesus said that there is no greater love than for a man to lay down his life for his friends, what Jesus did for you and for me on the cross. If that's true, which it is, it stands to reason then that Good Friday is about more than just reflection on our own need for a Savior and the suffering required to redeem us. An in-depth look at Jesus' suffering on Good Friday should also give us the greatest understanding of Jesus' love for us, don't you think? And so between the gospel accounts, the four of them of Good Friday, there are so many facets of Jesus' love that could be studied. And while I will reference some things from each of the Gospels this evening, I want to share some thoughts about Jesus' love for us from the account that Matthew gives. So Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look at verses 24 through 50. Matthew 27, and we'll begin in verse 24. In Matthew 27, verse 24, it tells us that when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him 
and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. We will stop there for now. We will revisit verses 24 and 25 at the end of the teaching, but the first part of Jesus' love that we see in his suffering is here in verse 26. It's just something that's mentioned very briefly. It says, and when they had scourged Jesus, he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him, Pilate is, to be crucified. The word scourged here, it means to beat severely with a whip. The Romans employed various kind of whips in their military and tribunal proceedings. We can't know the exact specifics of the whip that's mentioned here. However, the word that Matthew uses denotes the worst kind of whip. It was one that was reserved for foreigners, slaves, and gladiators. These kinds of whips were usually laced with bits of glass, bone, or metal on the ends. Josephus, describing these flagellations that were carried out in Palestine, he says they exposed the victim's innards and they were the prelude to crucifixion. The Romans used these on criminals for the most part to get confessions from them. If you confessed the crimes that you had committed, they would go easier on you. If you did not, then they would go harder. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7, it tells us about the Messiah and his suffering. But he was wounded, or more literally, pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Why? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every person's sin. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb. So did he not open his mouth. Jesus was not just strapped or beaten. He was pierced and torn. Because with nothing to confess, he bore the full brunt of a Roman scourging. What kind of massive love would be willing to go through the full brunt of what our sin deserved? Jesus' love. That did not deter him with every swing of that whip that tore his body. His love held him to that post and he spoke nothing. When we move down to verse 27, we see the second aspect of Jesus' love in Matthew's account, the mocking and the humiliation from the soldiers. Jesus would have already been stripped completely of clothing for the scourging. Afterward, they would have reclothed him. And then we see here that his battered, torn, and bleeding body is paraded into the common room of Pilate's palace. For it says a band of soldiers to mock. A band is a cohort that's 600 soldiers. 
This is not just a few people mocking Jesus. This is a massive crowd. And then, in front of all 600 soldiers, they restrip him as they decide to turn him into a dress up king. It says that they put on him a scarlet robe. It's not a robe, it is a short cloak or a scarf that was worn by soldiers, but that it was scarlet meant it would have to be one that belonged either to a high ranking commander or even to Pilate himself. It's likely an old one that they no longer used since it would become useless after this because of the grime of being wrapped around Jesus' body. After that, it says that they twisted a crown of thorns and put it upon his head. These thorns would be present all around the palace grounds. I have a set of them in my office to remind me. Very sharp, about an inch to an inch and a half long. Some would say, well, it was spring and the thorns would not be older, they would be younger, yes, but young thorns would still be quite painful. Recently, we did some yard work, and we have a rose bush, and it's got quite big thorns, but not as big as the ones that are in my office. I'll just tell you, those branches are still sitting on my front yard because nobody wants to mess with them. I couldn't imagine having them sitting on my head. And yet, more significant for many than any physical pain from having thorns on your head is the fact that Jesus is crowned with the curse that came upon humanity because of our sin. When Adam fell, the Lord told him, now from out of the ground will come forth what? Thorns and thistles and all manner of awful things, right? You're going to plant good things, but what's going to come from it? All your hard work? Thorns and thistles. The unfairness and the humiliation of the king of all glory bearing a crown that he had never earned because he'd never sinned. Now, wearing a crown of the king of sinners, the very idea is horrific. And then it says they put a reed in his right hand. These uh, plant stalks are more flexible than bamboo, but that's the closest correlation to them. Uh, They are still commonly used as building materials today. This one, of course, would have had to have been short enough to serve as a a mock scepter, but I guarantee you it would still be strong enough to injure someone if you smacked them with it. And then after playing dress up with Jesus, they each bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Ave, King of the Jews. This would be the Latin, Hail, the greeting that you would pronounce when you would declare your loyalty to Caesar. Ave, King of the Jews. Now, as Matthew paints this picture of Jesus' humiliation before the soldiers, I would have you keep in mind what Jesus is going to do to Satan and the fallen angels in just a few days. This is the man who is going to rise from the dead and he's going to bring Satan and the angels as his prisoners of war to heaven. This is a man that has no need to fear anyone or anything. I would also remind you that Jesus simply spoke the words, I am in the garden just a few hours earlier, and a different cohort, a different group of 600 soldiers genuinely fell to their knees. How massive 
is the love that restrains himself when he knows what he could do to each one of them by just opening his mouth. How massive is the love that looked past the pain of a barely functioning body in the midst of such humiliation when you know you can end all of it with just one word. And yet there's more for in verse 30, after their mocking, it says, they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. Jesus' head, it would have been the one untouched place in the scourging. And now his face is riddled with mingled spit and blood as he is led away to be crucified. Now, Jesus was so badly wounded at this point that they had to force someone to carry his cross to Golgotha. It says in verse 31, 32, and as they came out of the praetorium, Pilate's palace there, it says they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to carry his cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when Jesus had tasted thereof, he would not drink it. Jesus was so badly wounded that Paul had to, uh, sorry, that Pilate had to announce, behold the man, because Jesus didn't look anything like a human being at this point. Isaiah 52, 14 prophesies, saying his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. One would think that when Jesus was offered a numbing drink in verse 34 that he would take it. The immense amount of stress and pain that his body was under at this point, it would seem like common sense to take it. This vinegar compound was a narcotic designed to deaden one's sense of pain. The problem is the side effect was that it stupefied you. And so if Jesus drank this, he wouldn't be able to think clearly and would be unaware of what was going on. The soldiers would mix it with gall, which is a disgusting product. They would mingle the bitter gall as a final mockery. Will you put up with the gagging taste in order to lessen the pain? But the moment Jesus tasted the drink, he refused to take any more, not because of the taste, I assure you, but because Jesus wanted to keep his wits in the midst of all the pain. There were things that still needed to be done, things that still needed to be said, and he would ensure ensure that he said and did them correctly. What kind of love chooses to make things harder when it's already been so hard and there's an easier way? What kind of love keeps pushing through immense pain when it's already proven its love by all the pain one's already endured? Well, that's the love of Jesus for you and me. So verse 35 of Matthew 27 says, and they crucified him. And that's mostly all the gospels give us about Jesus' crucifixion. There's no details of the nails going in or anything else, the cross being laid down and then being brought up. It just says they crucified him. In fact, Luke alone gives us more details than simply saying he was crucified. In Luke 23, verse 33, we get one small tidbit here. In Luke 23, verse 33, it says, and when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, the other criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then, 
So when they crucified him, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Luke tells us they parted his clothing and cast lots. That's the very next thing that Matthew mentions in Matthew 27, 35. They crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots. So this is right when Jesus says these words. It's one thing to not repay evil with evil or mocking with mocking. It's another thing to put up with all that when you could justly do something about it. But the love of our Savior Jesus isn't just about being the nice guy or being the humble person who commits justice to God. The love of Jesus, after the metal spikes are driven into his wrists and feet, and as he is raised into the suffocating position of crucifixion, this love prays for his Father to forgive the cruel soldiers and the wicked religious leaders who brought all of this upon him. It's the love of Jesus that recognizes the real reason why he is here. He's not there because he was arrested by people who didn't like him. He's not there because he was turned over to Pilate. He had already told Pilate, you can do nothing unless it is given to you of my father. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Jesus was there by his choice to pay the price for all of sin, even the sins that put him here. This is one reason why Jesus rejects the drugged drink. We need to see his mind during the crucifixion. We need to hear the words from his heart so we can understand as much as is humanly possible his incomprehensible love for the worst of us, which therefore means it's for all of us. Paul's prayer that we would be able to comprehend the length, the breadth, the width, the depth of the incomprehensible love of Christ is answered in the accounts of the cross. This kind of love that says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As we move down to verse 36, after they part his garments in fulfillment of prophecy, it says in verse 36 that sitting down, they watched him there. The guards were just guarding him. And they set up over his head, over his head is an accusation that was written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And those that passed by, it says, reviled him, wagging their heads. The word reviled, it means to speak against someone in such a way as to harm their reputation. They are speaking things to say that he's not who he said he was, that he's not who everyone thought he was. And it's in the imperfect tense, which means they kept doing it for some time. And then they wagged their heads. It's a form of expression that we don't really use in our culture. Like if you see something that's like bad news, you know, or horrible, you might shake your head. But they had a specific way that they would do that in mock form. They would shake their heads in a way like you'd be sympathizing, but you're not really sympathizing. And that's what this word describes. It is the jeering at a fallen foe. We won, Jesus, and now you've lost everything. You were wrong. So, so wrong. 
In fact, Mark gives us an important insult that they hurled at him that Matthew leaves out. He says, and they said, you have destroyed the temple and build, uh, I'm sorry, and saying, you that destroy, you that will destroy the temple, because Jesus had said he would do this and build it again in three days, save yourself. You want to rebuild the temple after it's been destroyed? You can't even save yourself. If you be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said he saved others himself. He cannot save If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same into his teeth. All these false accusations. You're not who you said you were. You're a liar. You're a failure. Mark, in particular, emphasizes the statement Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross. Not just someone who claimed to be the King, but someone who claimed to be Messiah. Jesus, at this point, has already shown that out of love for us, He would endure humiliation, mocking, and pain. Now we add to that list that He would endure untruths. False accusations. You're a liar. You're not God's son. You're not the Messiah. While the love that brought Jesus this far is something I'm trying to comprehend, this is the part that just blows me away. Because the Gospels make it very clear that Jesus wasn't just guessing about who he was, he knew exactly who he was the entire time. Jesus knew what was truth and what was lie more than anyone on the earth. And it's extremely difficult for me to know when I look at Jesus and how he dealt, the way he dealt with the father of lies in just a few days, how he could tolerate this. Because if Jesus had dealt with them the way he deals with the father of lies, this would have gone down very differently, don't you think? Could you imagine the faces as he pulled himself off that cross? Could you imagine their terror at their own arrogant stupidity as he hauled them off as his prisoners of war? And yet we don't even need to imagine that because Jesus had something completely different in mind. He was thinking that some of these people who were saying these things, they would soon be saved. Because we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, that these whose hearts were so hard and so opposed to him, that when the gospel went forth in Jerusalem, and Peter preached it, that they smote their breasts because they were cut to the heart. And they said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? This is a love that looks at stupid, arrogant, wicked people like me. He says, I won't come off that cross and prove to everyone that you're wrong. Prove to everyone that you're the one worthy of condemnation. And I won't do it because what I'm thinking about right now is that in just a few weeks, what I'm doing right now is going to rescue you when you repent. Pastor Chuck used to say, they got one thing right. If he's going to save others, he cannot save himself. Himself he cannot save. And then we get to verse 45, almost the end. 
of Jesus' suffering. It says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then he tells us what it means. It is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We don't have time to go into Psalm 22 tonight because that's a study in and of itself. But that is the start of verse 1 of Psalm 22, the beautiful prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion 600 years before crucifixion was invented by the Persians. Jesus also refused the drug drink because he still needed to experience the full wrath of God for our sin. He had to be cognizant to fulfill the role of rabbi who would recite the first line of a scripture so that his students would then recall and repeat the rest of the scriptures to him. As Jesus there on the cross is experiencing the wrath of God for our sins, he quotes this verse so that they would recall Psalm 22 and see the parted garments, see that all his, his body being out of joint as crucifixion does. The whole function of crucifixion is you die of suffocation. To breathe because of the position you're in, you have to push up on the block that your feet are nailed to, and then you take a breath and then you go back down and you begin to suffocate all over again. The reason they break the legs of prisoners who are on a cross is so they can't push up anymore and they just die of suffocation quickly. Jesus wanted them to know exactly what was going on. He had to have his wits to do that. In Isaiah 53, it speaks of this offering for sin in verses 10 and 11. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you shall make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the suffering of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. To the very end, Jesus was still serving us. He made his soul an offering for sin to justify us, and he wanted everyone around him to know what was really going on and who he was doing it for that he was experiencing the judgment we deserve for our sin so that we never have to. Amen? And when that was complete, probably the craziest concept that's hard to comprehend for me at least, Jesus, at the end of that, utters a cry of victory because his love had finally won. It mentions that after he cried out the first verse of, beginning of verse 1 of Psalm 22, they had some disagreement on what he was talking about. But then verse 50 in Matthew tells us, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. Only John tells us the words of that final cry. It is finished. It means to bring to a successful completion I have been successful. Everything that needs to be done to rescue humanity from their sin has been completed. One of the other gospel writers tells us that just before Jesus utters these final words, he finally takes the numbing drink. 
Isn't that interesting? He was in so much pain, his body barely holding on. And yet, as he's about to expire and breathe his last, to commit his spirit into his Father's hands, love is still at the forefront of his mind, isn't it? I did it. It's done. A love so great. You need to hear this. A love so great that he experienced joy as he cried out in victory. I don't know if it's true. I personally believe the reason Jesus took the numbing drink is because the pain was probably overwhelming. And I think he just wanted a moment to think about what he'd done. To enjoy it. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That's what it says. There was a joy in front of him of every step of his suffering. And there at the end, he was able to meet it with a cry of victory. It is finished. It is finished. I've done it. My love is one. Now, I said I would return back to the beginning of Matthew 27, where I started in verses 24 and 25, and I'd like to do that now before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In verse 24, Pilate claims to be innocent of Jesus' blood. All who refuse to repent and believe do the same exact thing. Jesus' blood isn't on me. I'm, I'm a good person. I don't need to be saved. Okay, he died. He didn't need to die for me. It's not on me. In verse 25, Jesus' own people take the guilt for his innocent death upon them as if they were good enough to weather that crime, as if what doing that wouldn't hurt them or that his death meant so little to them that it wasn't that bad of a deed. I would say many look at their own sin and their own rejection of Christ the same today. Some would suggest that Jesus did not die for Pilate and those who spoke in verse 25. That there are some that Jesus does not die for because of this mindset. That his love was less for them because, well, they were not chosen to be saved. The logic is that God would not waste his blood, the blood of his son, for someone who would not benefit from it. The dictionary defines waste as to use or expend carelessly, extravagantly, or to no purpose. I would ask you tonight, why does the only purpose for the cross have to be salvation? Why is love removed from the equation of determining the action's value? Is love wasted on a child or a friend or a coworker who does not return it? Is love expended carelessly just because it's rejected or unappreciated? I would dare say love is expended with more care and thought when you know it won't be reciprocated. If Jesus and the Father only love those who were created with the ability to love him back, then Jesus and the Father are sinners by Jesus' own definition. For he says, if you only love those who love you, then you're no better than the heathen, tax collectors, the sinners. Instead, in that same section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that his Father is not 
like that. So be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is. If we want to know what that perfection is like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. Everything we've talked about tonight, his amazing love. And what do we see in Jesus during his suffering? The same love he commands us to give. Love for enemies, love for the self-righteous, love for the stupid, love for the arrogant, love for those who cursed him, blessings and prayers of mercy for those who killed him. Laying his life down for them too. The ultimate act of love. You might say, why bring this up on Good Friday just before we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, quite simply this. Jesus said in that same chapter in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that when we love like this, we are the sons of our Father. If you have an old King James, it says we are the children of our Father, but the word is sons. And we've been learning about sonship in Ephesians, haven't we? That we've been adopted, we've been raised up to the position of sons. The word is important. Jesus and Paul both tell us to act like who we are, those who've been raised to the position of a son of God. Both Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 5 talk about Christ's love and the cross as our example and empowerment to love others. And so in Ephesians, Good Friday is about remembering what Jesus did in his love for me, but it is also about recommitting myself to give that same love to others while I remember his love for me. And so I would ask you as the worship team, well, we'll leave the worship team down for now, but they'll come up at the end. But as the guys come forward with the communion elements, if you need them, you can ask for them. But I'm gonna give you a moment because if there's any one of you, if there's anyone out there you need to forgive, or if there's anyone out there that you need to choose to love tonight, tonight is the night to do so. Because I think we would miss the point if all we focus on is just what he did for us. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And so in this love that we remember and we reflect on the sufferings of Christ that we commemorate this evening, the love and joy Jesus displayed for us through his suffering, may we also be those who don't leave here tonight holding it back from anyone else. Amen? I heard a couple omis. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, they celebrated the Passover dinner there, and Paul tells us that he took bread and he broke it. They would have these big loaves of bread. We have in the communion elements here a, a, just a little tiny piece of bread. But the concept is, and the idea is to be similar, that at one point there was one big piece and we all got a little piece of it. There's more of us here than we're at that first commemoration of the way we do the Lord's Supper now. One piece of bread wouldn't work for all of us. But the idea remains the same. We're all in the same boat. He turned to them as he passed it around, and as they all had a piece, he said, take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this and keep on doing it in remembrance of me. 
when we hold that bread in our hands, what we are holding in front of us is the same idea that I'm in the same boat everyone else was in. I needed Jesus to leave heaven. I needed him to take on a body. I needed him to come and do this for me because if he did not, I could never make it. I could never save myself. I would never be righteous. And so as we open the part here with the bread, I'm gonna give us a moment of quiet as you can reflect on the love he has for you. Listen, I, I know that there's a possibility you may have even come here in the middle of a fight. I know maybe your week has gone really difficult and you're not getting along with a spouse or a child or a parent or a, a friend or a coworker or something. As we have these moments where we get along with Jesus in the quietness of our hearts and we thank him, don't forget the other part. Say, Lord, I give my body back to you. I do this in remembrance of what you did. You held nothing back in your love and joy in saving me. I don't want to hold anything back in following you. So let's do that in the quietness of our hearts for a moment, then I'll come and pray and we'll partake of the bread together. Lord, we sang earlier, my whole life is yours. I give it all, surrendered to your name. Lord, we do that in light of the fact that you've already done that for us. Lord, we, how many times have we felt your tug in our heart to obey you and our response is, Lord, look, Lord, I got nothing. I'm, I can't do this. I'm, I'm weak. I'm, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I'm, it's hard. And yet there you were up on the cross reciting scripture to us Reminding us, refusing something that would dull your senses so you could clearly communicate the word of God to us to help us understand. He spoke those words, Father, forgive them. So Lord, we sang it earlier, but we, we say it again. No matter how hard life is right now, my whole life is yours. You laid down your body for us. Thank you for that great love. We want to love you back and love others. We remember you tonight and all it cost you to show us that love so we would never doubt it. In Jesus' name, let's partake of the bread together. Jesus, after they ate the meal, be probably quite some time after that first part that we just did, Paul tells us that he took the cup, this would have been the third cup of the Passover dinner, the cup of redemption, and as he passed it around to them and they all drank, he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. It represents something different now. It represents the new covenant that God is making with you because of my shed blood. This do you as often as you drink it. Whenever you do this, whenever you celebrate Passover dinner in the future, do it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show. It means to declare the Lord's death till he come. It's not just the idea that we declare, well, Jesus died. A historian can do that. Anyone can do that. The declaration we make is Jesus died for me. And that's the concept again. As they would pass that cup around, they'd all drink from the same cup. We're not all drinking from the same cup, but the concept is the same. We're all in the same boat. We all need a new covenant from God. We all needed our sins to be washed away because we could never expunge them ourselves. We needed to be brought close to God because we could never get there on our own. So Jesus, he gave us a better deal. Well, not based on our own righteousness, but based on his free gift of righteousness. And so as we remember Christ's sacrifice for us, his soul and offering for sin, his body poured out, his blood poured out for us, as we remember the cup and what it represents, we'll take a moment in the quietness of our hearts to thank him, and then I'll come pray and we'll do that together. Lord Jesus, the only reason we could sing those words that here we stand, arms open wide, is because you receive us. That beautiful hymn, Christ receiveth sinful men. Jesus, there's something about that name. It's because you washed us clean. You're victorious. You poured out not just words of love, but you lived it, pouring out your life. And so now, Lord, as we hold this cup in our hand and remember all that it cost you to win us, we say thank you. And we remember you. And Lord, we choose to walk worthy of who you've made us. Sons, adopted sons, joint heirs with Christ. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's partake of the cup together. Let's all stand.